We're in Leviticus 18, but I want to see some things. We did this last week as well. I want us to see some things in the New Testament that continue uh, to affirm what we see in Leviticus 18. Turn to 1 Corinthians 6 with me, if you would. 1 Corinthians 6, we'll begin reading in verse 12. Not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body the sexually immoral person sins against his own body? Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You may be seated. God encourage us through his word this morning. For an eight-year-old, <laughs> one really big ear. We have about two more seconds here, and call it a day. Good thing this isn't on live video too, right? (laughs) Whose idea was it to do that? All right. This this can't look good. Do do I look all? Does my ear look like it's? All right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do just thank you for your word that uh, instructs us and helps us to know you better. Help us to to live in obedience to you. And help us to be able to apply these things for your glory. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, remember as we we talked about this, uh, our goal in uh, looking through Leviticus 18 and some of the principles here, our our goal was to make obedience to God uh, not only seem possible, but to seem desirable. For us to say we, we want to come to God's word and see what obedience looks like, and, and then follow him in that obedience to say, okay, this is, this is something I not, not only need to do because God tells me to do it, it's something I, I want to do. I want to be obedient to God because I love him. And as we've been looking at this, we've, we've seen that one of the, the foundational aspects of obedience to God in the area of sexuality and the Pentateuch, one of the foundational passages for us understanding what that looks like is Genesis 2. Genesis 2 is a foundational passage for sexual ethics in the Pentateuch. 
in Genesis 2, you see a, a man and a woman coming together and making a, a covenant commitment to live in faithfulness to one another, to become one flesh. That's what happens in Genesis 2. And that, that covenant that they make with one another becomes the foundation for us understanding sexual ethics throughout the Pentateuch. One man, one woman coming together in covenant faithfulness, that's the image, the picture that God is trying to create for us. And everything else we see in the Pentateuch and throughout Scripture about sexual morality and holiness in that area flows from that. Now, as I was thinking about that over the the past few weeks and thinking about the, the covenant vows that we make, I was thinking about my own vows that I made uh, 18 years ago this August. And I've actually thought about this over the years. I've, I've tried to, to, to think about what is it exactly that I said almost 18 years ago. And I, I've, I've been wondering about that, not because I'm trying to find a loophole or something. I mean, I, I know generally what I said 18 years ago, but I, over the years uh, since then, I've, I've talked with lots of, of young people, older people getting married and and we've talked about their vows, and I've, I've tried to remember, now, what exactly is it that I said almost 18 years ago? And so this, this past week, I pulled out our wedding video. It's been transferred onto a, a DVD, and kind of put the DVD there in the DVD player this, this week and began to, to watch our wedding ceremony. Beautiful wedding ceremony, and uh, watched the beginning with all the, the people kind of entering the room, and the camera scanned across the room, and you saw people in that video that I haven't seen for almost 18 years, and then uh, our families entered the room, and all eight of our grandparents, between the two of us, the eight grandparents were there, only one grandparent remains with us uh, 17 and three quarters years later, and then the, the pastor stood up, and he began to speak, and fast-forwarded, uh, he talked for a while, beautiful things, got a couple of them, but it got to the, got to the vow part of the ceremony, and the pastor, Jim Mitchell was his name, is his name, he looked at Whitney and he looked at me, and he said this to me, he looked at me, he says, Daniel, Will you take Whitney to be your wife to live together in marriage? Do you promise to love her, comfort her, honor and support her in sickness and in health? Do you forsake all others to cling to her alone? And do you devote yourself to her as long as you both shall live? And I said, I do. And then he asked Whitney the same question. She said, I do. And then we repeated after Jim, I, Daniel, take you, Whitney, to be my wife, to love and to cherish from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, so long as we shall live. And then Whitney repeated those words after him as well. Then I took a ring and placed it on her finger. Then uh, she took this ring right here nearly 18 years ago, put it on my finger, And each of us said words like, I give this ring to you as an expression of my constant faith and abiding love. And and that was the covenant commitment that she and I made almost 18 years ago. Now, I I mentioned the book, The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller last week. 
and Tim Keller makes a very interesting argument in, in his book. He argues that we become who we become based upon, based upon the promises that we make and keep. I'm not the same person today that I was 18 years ago. I'm not even the same person that I was 10 years ago or, or five years ago. And Tim Keller says that that's true of all of us. We, we are in a, a state of, of constant change. And, and who I am in five years is not going to be the same person I am today. And, and what happens in a marriage ceremony is we, we take a vow and we say, as we make this commitment, we say, okay, I'm, I'm committing myself to a certain trajectory. And I don't know exactly what my preferences are going to be five years from now. I don't know how I've changed and all the ways that I've changed over the last 10 years or 15 years or whatever, but I'm, I'm committing to a trajectory. I'm saying, okay, this is where I am today, and this is where I want to be in 10 years and, and, I'm, and, and beyond that. And so I'm, I'm making this vow, I'm making this promise, and I'm committing myself to a path, even though I don't know everything about that path. I look at that video, and I see this, this 21-year-old kid looking scared out of his mind as he says these words. It's okay here. Committing to a, to a traje- I see a, a young man committing to a tra- trajectory. Keller would quote another author who, who wrote this about the same idea. He wrote, My wife has lived with at least five different men since we were wed, and, and each of the five has been me. The connecting link with my old self has always been the memory of the name I took on back there. I am he who will be there with you. Let me say that again in a slightly different way. This man is saying that he's going to change. He's going to change over the next five years, six years, seven years. But he's he's taking on an identity that that is going to be an identity that he carries with him however he changes. Who am I at my core? I am he who will be there with you. It's a central, by, by covenant promise, that's a central aspect of who I am. Who am I, Whitney? I am he who will be there with you. Becomes an anchor of who we are. I may change in what sports teams I like. I may change in what hobbies I have. I may change my favorite book or my favorite color, whether I drink tea or coffee. But I am going to be he who will be there with you. Isn't that beautiful? And if I could, could talk to uh, that, that 21-year-old, scared-looking, scrawny kid, I would say, hey, hey, buddy, it's going to be okay. Lighten up a little bit. You look really tense up there. The promise that you're making is a a good promise. The joy that is going to be yours is far better than you can possibly imagine. You think you like this girl now. Let me tell you, buddy, in 17 years, you're going to feel about her in ways you can't even imagine now. And now that would not be possible apart from, from covenanting. 
And so when I make that promise, when any person makes a promise that we see in Genesis 2, we're saying, I'm committing my life to being faithful to what God's picture of marriage and sexuality is supposed to be. I'm, I'm making a promise, and I'm keeping it. And that's a promise based on my desire to love God, and I believe that obedience to him is best. It's a trajectory I follow whether I'm single or married, whether I've been married in the past, widowed, divorced, whatever situation I find myself in today, I'm saying, okay, I'm covenanting, I'm promising, I'm committing to God to be obedient to him because I love him and I desire what he desires. That's holiness. Devoting myself to God out of a love for him, fleeing those things that would cause me to not be able to follow him perfect obedience. Now let me just kind of dive into the principles. We've talked about some principles before. Let me go ahead and dive into the principles I want us to think about this morning. This is the first principle this morning. It's the sixth principle we've looked at in our study of holiness and sexuality in the Pentateuch. The principle is this. Sexual activity in the marriage relationship is both encouraged and restricted by God in his holiness. Sexual activity in the marriage relationship is both encouraged and and restricted by God in his holiness. Now, uh, turn back to Leviticus 18. As we were in Leviticus 18 last week, remember what we saw. We saw all sorts of different prohibitions. We saw this the last two times we were in Leviticus 18. We saw all sorts of prohibitions. We said, okay, these, these types of relationships are, are not acceptable. In other words, a person can't simply say, okay, I understand that physical intimacy outside of marriage is wrong, I would like to be physically intimate with this person, therefore I'll, I'll marry them and everything will be okay. No, God says, that's not how this works. There are restrictions upon whom you can marry, on, on who you can be physically intimate with in a marriage relationship. God puts restrictions on that. The person needs to be different than who you are. You can't be part of the same one flesh relationship. You can't marry your aunt or your stepsister or sister, you know, there's... There's boundaries that have to be someone different than who you are because of the picture that God is trying to create. And they need to be someone who's designed for you. So there are restrictions upon this marriage relationship. Now what we see this morning in this principle is, is you also can't say this. You can't say, okay, I, I married the right person. I didn't marry someone who's part of the same one flesh relationship. I married someone who's designed for me. Now, uh, now this aspect of physical intimacy God isn't concerned about anymore. I can kind of just do whatever I want now that we're married. No sorts of, of issues exist now, and that's not the right way to understand this either. You can't just say, well, I've checked off the marriage box. I did what God wanted me to do. Now I can do whatever I want in this aspect of our relationship. God's concerns no longer are present. That's not the case. Now, why do I say this? Well, we've looked at several parts of Leviticus 18, kind of working our way through this chapter, and you, you come to verse 19, and really in verses 19 through 23 and then beyond, you kind of find some 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 parts that that kind of make you, what, what is he getting at here? You can say that. In verse 19, it says, you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. And you say, now, now that's, that's kind of an interesting thing to put there. Why does God single that out? And the purpose is Related to what we've already seen in Leviticus as we've talked about worship of God. This is an issue of ceremonial cleanness. It's an issue of caring, I think, also for another person. 
But the ultimate purpose is related here based upon what we understand and what we've seen in the previous parts of Leviticus. This is related to worship of God. In other words, God has restricted intimacy within a marriage based upon the purpose of marriage being to glorify him. Because this would not allow worship of God to take place in the way that he's described in the book of Leviticus, God's saying restrain in this instance. Now, turn back to 1 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians 7. And you say, well, we're not under the law, and so maybe God doesn't have any restrictions in this area of life anymore. No, we, we see that in the New Testament as well, physical relationships, intimacy within a marriage relationship, are again encouraged and also restricted by God. 1 Corinthians 7. Paul says, now, concerning the matters about which you wrote. Now, what had happened is the people in Corinth had written Paul and they'd asked several questions. And so as you go through the book of 1 Corinthians, you see Paul quoting the questions that they asked him. And so one of the questions, the statements that they had written him about was this statement. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Paul, that's kind of what we're thinking. What do you think? And Paul says this. Paul, Paul corrects their understanding. He says in verse 2, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So the people in Corinth are writing Paul and say, hey, Paul, because of all this rampant sexual immorality, would it just be better to say, okay, just restrain from this activity altogether? Now, later, and we talked about this last week, Paul is going to advocate celibacy for people to whom God calls that lifestyle to. But here he's saying, look, when a, when a person is in a marriage relationship, it's a good thing. And then he says, God encourages and at times restricts intimacy. Now, l- let me share with you uh, five statements that I think help us understand the purpose of physical intimacy in a marriage. And I had, I had debated cutting these out of the messages, I realized I was going a little bit long, but I, I think these are so helpful for people to think through, both those who are single, both those who are married, uh, people who find themselves in various circumstances say, okay, what is it, what's the purpose of this, this intimacy in marriage that God calls us to? And here, here are five statements. Here's the first one. And the first one is the overarching statement. The ultimate purpose, the ultimate purpose of intimacy in a marriage is to glorify God, right? The ultimate purpose of marriage, uh, of intimacy in a marriage is to glorify God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.20, you were bought with a price, and this is again the context of sexual morality, you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. The purpose of your body is to glorify God. All aspects of life are to glorify God. This aspect of life is no different. It's a mistake to say, well, you know, we, we persevered as a single person, we we uh, didn't do what God said not to do. We glorified him. Now we've said our wedding vows. We've checked that box. I hope God's happy. Now 
Now God's not concerned with this aspect of our life anymore. That's not what we see in Scripture. God has called us to be a part, if we're married, God has called us to be a part of this this physical relationship, this intimate relationship, that's to be a, a beautiful picture of the relationship between him and his church. God has hardwired us to be drawn to beauty. I was reading an, a couple articles this last week about beauty. People were talking about how there are there's universal things that we find beautiful. Flower, certain geometric proportions. One article was talking about how even babies are drawn to, to beautiful faces. Another article talked about how, seriously said, Long-distance runners are very beautiful people. That's not my opinion. That's science. (laughs) Science. You can't argue with science. I only found that one place. I don't know. It was in runner's world. No, I don't know. (laughs) God's hardwired us for beauty. He's created this marriage relationship to be a a thing of beauty. And and how foolish of us to say, okay, here's this Here's this beautiful thing that God wants us to glorify him in and to, to exchange that for something ugly, for something out of a trash bin. God says, here's the picture, one man, one woman, glorify me. And this, I think, helps singles, married people think, okay, this is, this is right. This helps me understand what I've misunderstood. So that's the ultimate purpose of intimacy in a marriage is to is to glorify God. Secondly, another purpose of intimacy, and all of these fall under that great overarching purpose to glorify God, but, but a second purpose of intimacy in a marriage is, is to consummate a marriage. This is consummation. This is an act that confirms a one flesh relationship. We see that happen in the Garden of Eden. It's, it's the last step in the covenant-making promise. Denny Burke would write this, it, it completes the, the imitation, I'm sorry, it, it completes the initiation of the marriage covenant. And every intimate act after the initial consummation is an ongoing affirmation of the husband and wife's unique union. It points to the glory of God and it affects a union that is designed to be an image of Christ's marriage to his bride, the church. And so the purpose of it in a marriage relationship is to consummate a marriage. A third purpose, a purpose of intimacy is, is to have children. It's to have children. We see a a blessing given the first couple. We see it repeated in the Pentateuch. To be fruitful and, and to multiply. The, the marriage relationship is, is to be a relationship in which children come from that. Now you say, well, hold on, Daniel. Aren't there some marriage relationships in which, in which that doesn't occur? Does that make them less of a marriage? Absolutely not. But what we, what we see in Scripture is it's the normative pattern, the normative pattern of a marriage relationship in which the, the man and the woman are coming together as, as one, is that the fruit of that is our children. It's a blessing by God. It's not a curse. It's a blessing. It's a gift by God used to glorify him. Now, one other cool thing, as we think about this, this one flesh relationship, and husband and wife coming together, the beautiful picture that it is, it's glorifying God, it's consummating the marriage, it's, it's uh, that, that purpose is, is to have children. We're a church that loves adoption, right? We're a church in which many of us have experienced the, the beauty of God bringing people into our family in a unique way. And, 
Something kind of cool happens in Leviticus 18 as well. Verse 11 says, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter brought up in your father's family since she is your sister. Now, without going too far here, isn't isn't that a, a beautiful statement? In other words, whenever you have a husband and wife who come together in a marriage relationship and you have the fruit of that for, for some couples, the normative process, usually what happens is, is children come from that union, not always, but that's what generally happens, we see in scripture and experience in life. But now, if, if another child, and, and that's the, the product of a one flesh relationship, but now if another child comes into that family who's not a, a biological uh, product of that one flesh relationship, because they're still in that family that has this one flesh relationship, it's, it's as if they are. It's, it's beautiful, right? It, it's as if they're, they're, they're brother and sister with those who were biological offspring of, of the parents. Another purpose of intimacy is to express love. To express love. Now, oftentimes when we think of love, we might think, well, love is, is this emotion, so I I feel really happy about you, so I'm, I want to be. I want to be in this this intimate relationship with you. Or we think of love as kind of a physical attraction. Hey, I'm, I'm physically attracted to you. I love you. Let's let's be close. But now, what, what is the biblical definition of love? What do we see in Scripture about love? And, and by the way, if you could enter into marriage with this understanding, your life will be so much better. If you are in a marriage relationship and and you understand what it means that this aspect of the purpose of, of intimacy in marriage is to, to love one another. If you know what that really meant, your life, I think, would be, would be so much, so much sweeter as you follow God's design. What is love? Love is not this emotional response. Love is not biblically uh, a physical attraction. Ultimately, what, what do we see in Scripture about love? Love is a, a decision that we make, a commitment we make, to sacrifice of ourselves for the eternal benefit of another person. And what's very strange to me is, is as and, and I would, would say over the last 18 years, um, as, I, as I've counseled people, this is, it's hard for us as Christians sometimes to understand this. We think, okay, I understand that I have a responsibility to love my wife when it comes to providing, or when it comes to, you know, at the end of the day, the, the kids are just kind of going crazy, hey, let me, let me sacrifice for you, let me love you by taking care of the children, let me sacrifice by taking on dinner or lunch or whatever it is, let me, let me care for you, let me care for you, and yet, it's, and yet for, for many couples, we don't understand that the commitment to love each other, which is, again, committing to sacrifice for the eternal benefit of another person, it also includes the area of intimacy. In other words, the ultimate purpose of, of intimacy, if, if, if love is a part of that purpose, it's, it's not to receive, but to give. Say, so what is it that you need? What is it that you need from me in order to care for you? If we entered into that aspect of the marriage relationship saying, boy, I, I appreciate that God has given this aspect of our marriage life so that I can care for you and love you and sacrifice for you, I think many marriages would experience much more joy. What, what do you need from me just physically to care for you? What, what, do you need a hug right now? Do you need, uh, you know, I, I, there's a 
beautiful picture of uh, Whitney's grandparents that I have in my mind. Even into their old age, uh, her grandfather would just rub the feet of her grandmother every night. Whitney is not quite so blessed in a husband, but I'm trying, right? It's a good thing, a good thing to strive for. Oftentimes there's several kids between us on the couch. The beautiful fruit of our marriage. Then lastly, and this is related, another purpose of intimacy is, is to give and receive pleasure. And we, we've, we've alluded to that. Song of Solomon describes the, the biblical approval of pleasure in marriage. Proverbs 5 describes the sustained relationship that yields the, the pleasure that God desires us to have in this relationship. Now, what, what does this all mean? It means an intimacy is good in marriage. It's a normative state of a marriage relationship. Our engagement in this, this physical intimacy in marriage is governed by... It's ultimate purpose to, to glorify God. There's limits here, and these limits are, uh, as we place limits on ourselves in this marriage relationship, it's all about glorifying God as we, and worshiping God as we come together. And it's, God's call is for us to be enthralled by the beauty to which he calls you. And again, no matter what state you find yourself. Another principle here, second principle this morning, seventh overall that we've looked at as we've gone through the book of Pentateuch. Book of Leviticus, chapter 18 specifically. Sexual sin is so deadly that it is worth taking radical steps to eradicate it. Sexual sin is so deadly that it's worth taking radical steps to eradicate it. Look down at verse 24 of Leviticus 18. And Moses tells the people, don't make yourself unclean by any of these things. And he says, For by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity. And the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you, you shall keep my statutes and my rules. Do none of these abominations. And again, he says in verse 27, Remember the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations. The land became unclean. Don't let the land, verse 29, vomit you out of it. Verse 29, everyone who does any of these abominations, a person who... The persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. That is, that is an extreme response to sexual sin, to immorality. Look, cut these people off. We see in the Pentateuch, both in the, the stories and in God's specific words, that there are both immediate and eternal consequences to, to sexual sin, to immorality. And the the wise person says, boy, I I don't want to experience those things. Leviticus 20 will describe the the various punishments that that exist for people who violate the things in chapter 18. Then we go into the New Testament, we see this affirmed. In the New Testament, we see Jesus and and Paul and and others, Peter and, and, and Jude, warning us, hey, saying the the dangers of pursuing immorality are so great that it is worth doing whatever you need to do to to avoid this type of sin. Jesus in Matthew 5 will say, you've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in, in his heart. And then Jesus says, because of that, because of the, the temptation of our heart toward sin and immorality, it's worth, Jesus says, doing radical things to avoid that sin. 
Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And of course, Jesus is, is using hyperbole. He's using exaggeration. Uh, don't, don't come to me next week and say, Daniel, I got serious and I took out my eye this week and lost a hand. You know, don't don't, don't want to hear, I don't want to make any ER trips this week uh, because of you taking this too literally. But here's what you do take literally. You take literally Jesus' words that it is worth making radical changes in your life to pursue holiness. Paul would tell Timothy, and notice the connection here, he would say, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from your heart. You see how those two things go together? What is holiness? Holiness is not just about obeying a bunch of rules and not doing a bunch of things. It's about pursuing God. As we pursue God, we flee those things that would take us away from God. First Corinthians 6, we read earlier, flee sexual immorality. This should sober us, right? As we see the consequences of, of immorality in Scripture, and we see God and, and the, the writers of Scripture warning us, hey, flee this stuff. This stuff will, will kill you. We should be sobered. John Kelly is the uh, Homeland Security Secretary, and maybe you saw this about a week and a half ago. He was giving an interview, and, and he said these words. He said, again, this is the guy in charge of keeping us safe. He said, if you knew what I know about terror, you'd never leave the house. That's pretty sobering. If, if you knew what I knew about terror, you'd never leave your house. If you and I knew what God knows about the consequences of immorality, about the joy of being obedient to him, we'd never wander, right? We'd never stray. If we believed what God said regarding the dangers of immorality, the temptations would seem even more insane. Now, you say, okay, Daniel, what, what does radical obedience look like in my life? If, if it's so deadly, it's so dangerous, it's worth taking radical steps to eradicate it, what do I do? Now, I, I would be careful telling you these are, these are the three things you need to do because the three things that I need to do to avoid sin in my life are different than the three things that you need to do or the, the 30 things that I need to do are different than the 30 things you need to do. And the, for one person, something would be great. For another person, it, it would just be legalism. But what I would say is, is have this attitude. Have the attitude that says no matter what I need to do to pursue Jesus Christ and flee immorality, I, I'm willing to do it. Maybe that's having an accountability partner. I, I have someone in my life, you say, that I'm just going to ask them to ask me questions. And I, I want them to know everything that's going on in my life so they can pray for me and they can, they can let me know when I'm thinking wrongly about things. Maybe for, and, and it can change in different periods of, of, of times in your life. Whitney and I, we, we had a period of time in our life where we said, you know what? Uh, we just, because of, of time and because of how our life is and because of just how we need to, to spend some time together, we just got rid of our TV for a couple of years. Maybe that's what God would call you to. Whatever, I, I think you have to say, 
you have to come to the point where you say, okay, is Jesus worth not having my iPhone? Yes. Is Jesus worth not having internet in my home? Of course. Is Jesus worth not having whatever it is, fill in the blank? The answer, of course, is yes. Two more things. I'm going to go through these last two kind of quickly because next week I want to get some other things. But here's the eighth principle. Sexual sin is idolatrous and satanic. It's from the pit of hell. Leviticus 18, verse 21, there's other passages we go to here, but as you come through the the passage, you come to verse 21, there's something that seems like it doesn't go with with the rest of the passage. All of a sudden it talks about offering your children to Moloch. Now, what is it describing there? It's describing a a type of worship that the other people in the land, the land of Canaan, engaged in. And to offer your child to Moloch was this this perverse worship in which you, you burned your children. They were physical sacrifice. What's supposed to take place in a marriage relationship, we see in the Pentateuch. Husband, wife, come together, covenant faithfulness. One of the purposes of that physical intimacy is that a child is born. And we see in the, in the, in the Pentateuch that that child becomes a, a worshiper of Yahweh God as well. That's, that's what's supposed to happen. Now instead there's this, there's these the sexually immoral relationships. There's the, the fruit of those relationships. And those children, instead of becoming a means to worship God, they're sacrificed. Instead of valuing this life and cherishing it, it's, there's this, this perverse attempt to, to worship a deity through, through killing. It's, it's idolatry. Now, as you go through the Old Testament and the New Testament, you, you, consistently, you consistently see this, this link between sexual immorality and idolatry. There's this, this constant link in Scripture of these two things. Ezekiel 23 describes idolatry in in very sexual terms. Psalm 106 verse 39 talks about people who became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Hosea chapter 4 talks about the, the spirit of immorality that has led the people astray. They've left their God to play the whore. Very strong words there. The New Testament picks up this theme. Colossians 3, 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is what? It's idolatry. First Peter talks about sensuality and lawless idolatry. The person who is an idolater is saying, okay, I'm not going to worship Yahweh God. And remember, God has given us sexuality as this, this means to create this picture of what it looks like for God to be in relationship with his people. And we, when we commit sexual morality, we're saying, okay, I don't want that picture. I don't want to worship God. I, I want to worship myself. You cannot be a worshiper of God and a committed sexually immoral person. Those two things can't coexist. The person who says I want to, the person who's a, a God worshiper is going to be deeply troubled in their soul about this connection between sexual sin and idolatry. The committed idolater doesn't care. The God worshiper says, I want to worship God. I don't want sexual sin. I don't want immorality. And, and this is a beautiful thing, right? 
Because what does 1 Corinthians 6 say about, about sexual sin and the believer? It says that we can say, this is who I was, but I've been bought with a price, and now I can glorify God in my body with who I am. The beautiful thing about the grace of God and the gospel is that wherever we find ourselves in terms of what's happened in our past, God's mercies are new every morning. Last principle, and it's, it's strange to even need to spend time on this, and we may spend more time on this in, in the future, but sexuality we see in the Pentateuch is expressed within the context of, of gender. And the struggles that some people go through in this, this area regarding identity with, with different genders or a lack of commitment to the gender to which God has, has given them is not new. We see it even here in the Pentateuch. We see it, for example, in Deuteronomy 22.5. Now, this seems self-evident, and, and yet that, that, that sexuality is expressed within the context of gender. And yet, in, in our culture today, not only is there not only are there strains in our, in our culture that, that would disagree with this, but, but our culture is, again, which, as we talk about moral revolution, has gotten to a point where we're, we're advocating boldly a, a different understanding of reality. It's been quick. 1996, Bill Nye, the science guy, had a show, and, and uh, in a 1996 episode of Bill Nye, the science guy, there's this... A young woman who tells the viewers, um, she says, inside each of our cells are these things called chromosomes, and they control whether we become a boy or a girl. There are only two possibilities, XX, chromosome a girl, or XY, a boy. Now, that was in 1996. Now that episode is it was uploaded to, to Netflix from Bill Nye's production company. They, they took that scene out because that understanding, that very scientific understanding, XX, girl, XY, uh, male, that very scientific understanding contradicts what Bill Nye would say now about what gender is. Now gender is about self-identification, not genetics. And there are more than just, according to Bill Nye now, there are more than just the two traditional genders. We need to love people in the midst of a culture that's denying something very obvious, and yet at the same time, I, I think we have to be very bold in saying, man, this, this is absurd. This is absurd. You think of the story of the emperor's new clothes, where the, the boy po- points out the obvious, the, the emperor is naked. It, it's absurd, this emperor who thinks he's enlightened is, is literally exposed. In our culture, there's a naked emperor, and we declare him not only to be clothed, but we declare him to be an empress despite all evidence to the contrary. It's crazy. It's silliness. It's something by God's grace we need to refuse to embrace. Instead, embrace this biblical picture. Sexuality is expressed within the context of gender. How can we pursue God in this area? Whatever situation we find ourselves in this morning, it it means this. It means, as we talked about in the beginning, it means making a promise. It means saying, God, I believe what you say in your word, and I believe that the, the joy of being in relationship with you is far better than anything else that I could obtain, and I'm going to, to covenant, I'm going to promise to pursue you in obedience in this area, regardless of the cost. 
I'm placing my faith in your son, Jesus Christ, and him alone for my righteousness. And now, because I love him and I'm committed to him, I will follow him on the difficult road of discipleship wherever it leads. And brothers and sisters, no matter what has taken place in your past, as we commit to that for our future, that is the only path, no matter how difficult, upon which we can find life and joy. Father, we pray by your grace you would help us to do so. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.